0: Do you need someone to talk to? If you are seeking a listener who is non-judgmental, confidential, and familiar with resources, then a Speakeasy volunteer might be able to help you. AMS Speakeasy is a peer support service located in the north concourse of the sub. If you would like to speak to someone, come to the desk and tell a volunteer, or ring the doorbell located behind the desk.
1: Did you do really well in a first or second year course? Want to make a difference in the UBC community and school communities around the world? Join Students Offering Support, or SOS, and become a tutor today. Math, accounting, economics, psychology, engineering courses, French and Spanish, statistics, and more. If you aced it, Students Offering Support wants you to help other students ace it too. Check out ubcstudentsofferingsupport.com for more information. My address is 2904 Salisbury Street. I can't understand you. You need to speak English. Hey, Polly, that remark is totally inappropriate. I know you're new here, but this is a safe harbor office. We're committed to treating all of our clients respectfully.
0: What would you do if you were this witness? Safe Harbor Respect for All provides diversity workshops across Canada with funding from the Government of Canada. Visit safeharbor.ca. Respect for All. Pass it on. (laughs)
1: Radio is devoted to the educational literacy for the Persian-speaking communities and those of you interested in connecting with arts and literature of people from Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Georgia, Armenia, Pakistan, and India. From environmental fairy tales to Epic mythologies, poetry, scholarly pieces to folklore and music. Seymour lands in as your mythological storyteller every Thursday, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific time at CITR 101.9 FM from Vancouver. Usually, the Republic of Iraq is a country in the Middle East encompassing the Mesopotamian alluvial plain, the northwestern end of the Zagros mountain range, and the eastern part of the Syrian ranges. Turkey to the north, Iran to the east, Kuwait to the southeast, Saudi Arabia to the south, Jordan to the southwest, and Syria to the west. Iraq has a narrow section of coastline measuring 58 kilometers under the northern Persian Gulf. The capital city, Baghdad, is in the center east of the lands two major rivers the Tigris, Dejle, and Euphrates, Euphrates, run through the center of Iraq, flowing from ages ago between northwest to southeast which provides Iraq with agriculture capable The rock, known as Mesopotamia, meaning land between the rivers, has been the home to continuous successive civilizations since 10,000 years ago. The region between Tejle and Euphrates rivers is often referred to as the Cradle of Civilization in East and the birthplace of writing. At different periods. In Iraq's history, the land has been the center of the indigenous, Akkadian, Sumerian, Assyrian, Babylonian empires. It was also part of the Median, Ikkadian, Hellenistic, Parthian, Achaemenid, Sassanid of Persian Empire, and after Islam of Rashidun, Omayyad, Abbasi and after the savage invasion of Mongol when great Persian and Islamic libraries and earliest universities were put on fire. were mostly demarcated in the year 1920 by the Colonial British League of Nations, when the Ottoman Empire was divided by the Treaty of Sevres. Iraq was placed under the authority of the United Kingdom as the British Mandate of Mesopotamia. A colonial monarchy was established in 1921 and later under the name of Kingdom of Iraq in 1932. In 1958, the British colonial structures set the scene for a fake overthrow of the monarchy which destabilized Iraq and the new Republic of Iraq was created by the support of a new colonial committee of Western states. Iraq's colonial structure was sustained through the support of investing colonizers consist of British, American, and French states until 2003, when the colonial state of Saddam started to become out of control of its allied supporters and colonial godfathers. an invasion led by the United States of America including multinational forces, the Saddam's Ba'ath party was removed from power and the country officially became the scene for massive invasion and massacre. The American presence in Iraq was claimed to be ended in 2011. But the humane and ecological consequences of the invention remain and are consistently on rise. The story of Seymour is about the resistance of the people of Iraq against these interplaying forces. Stay with us until 6pm today to hear this story.
2: triumphantly won't you help to sing these songs of freedom cause all I ever had redemption redemption songs
3: city, and I made the not too common decision of joining the military when my country was at war. But then, something I never expected happened to me. I found myself in the middle of the second siege of Fallujah, one of the largest and bloodiest single operations of the occupation of Iraq. My command told us we were fighting against evil. My country told us we were heroes. But my conscience told me something different. So I set out in search of the truth.
0: Marines essentially surrounded the town. They did allow women and children to flee, but locked everyone else in. Uh, and then. Comes the attack, and whoever was killed, their warrens was killed. It was a massacre. It's it's, it's a genocide. By every standard, it's a major crime. Because it fits the definition of genocide very clearly. It's uh, to exterminate in whole or in part uh, a specific group, and it was you know, Fallujah had to be destroyed.
3: They destroyed eighty the, percent of the city. They destroyed houses. They killed women, children, elders.
0: It has a certain comparison with nature, which uh, in the West is considered the ultimate crime.
3: People compared uh, Fallujah after the second siege to uh, Stalingrad.
2: Fallujah is 100 Guernicas. I think that the, the, sh- the, sh- the sheer volume of firepower that was employed on uh, Fallujah was intended to send a message and to teach a lesson you know this is what happens to you when you defy the will of the the new empire
3: 10 years since the U.S. invasion of Iraq cancer and birth defects plagued the city of Fallujah. The U.S. military's extensive use of depleted uranium and white phosphorus is suspected to be the cause behind this health catastrophe.
0: A baby has been delivered in the ambulance on the way here. <laughs> Female baby with cleft palate and for the trisomy 13 syndrome, Permeation of abdominal vessel most probably, polycystic kidney. And this is a this is a bulge in the abdomen, the muscle in the abdomen. This is a polycystic kidney, and there is a facial cleft, completely facial palate and the cleft. Uh, most probably, this patient is uh, mentally retarded, considered to be the case, low set ear, and polidactyly. You can see the polidactyly for the left. For the left uh, hand, there is a six finger, not five, six finger in the left hand. This is, she is a female baby.
3: Uh, thank you for coming tonight. This project really means a lot to me, and I appreciate all your support. So, um, I thought I'd share some of my photos from my deployment to Iraq with you guys tonight. I apologize for the quality of some of these photos. I just took them with this lousy disposable camera that I bought at the base PX. Anyways, all my problems started here. This is the Marine Corps boot camp at Parris Island, South Carolina. As soon as you get off the bus, they make you stand on these yellow footprints. And uh, when the drill instructor says so, you're supposed to pass through these doors And it's supposed to be this very dramatic moment, because once you do boot camp, it's supposed to start officially then, and there's no turning back. it's a lot like Dante's door into hell. I went to boot camp very willingly, and not because I had strong feelings about fighting terrorism or because of 9-11. I knew practically nothing about terrorism or Islam or the world outside of Fitchburg, Massachusetts, for that matter. And if the attacks on 9-11 had never happened, I probably would have joined the Marine Corps anyways. When I think about it now, uh, the most honest answer that I can give to you as to why is because after I graduated from high school, I was looking for some sort of adventure. And I thought that war was the best adventure I could ever hope for. It wasn't exactly that simple, but I think that's probably the biggest reason. I had worked landscaping every summer during all my years in high school. And once I graduated, there was a strong possibility that I would have worked landscaping for the rest of my life. And I would have been okay with that. I liked landscaping. But the thought that it would have been every day for the rest of my life scared me at 18 years old. I knew that eventually I would have to resign myself to an average life in the middle of nowhere Massachusetts and do the same job every day like all the other working stiffs do. But before I did that, I wanted to experience something different. I wanted something that I could always tell stories about at bars and around campfires. After the Marine Corps, I probably would have went home and planted flower beds and mowed lawns for the rest of my life, but at least I would have had a story to tell, and that would have been enough for me. And then there's all the stuff that the recruiters promise you, like the Montgomery GI Bill, the guaranteed paycheck on the 1st and the 15th of every month, all the respect that you'll get. My recruiter gave me this big spiel about how employers would always hire me first because I was a Marine, and all the money I would make on deployments, and how everyone would look up to me and uh, the women would be all over me. Of course, all these things definitely influenced my decision, too. Something interesting happened to me at the end of boot camp, though. We were at the end of our last big test as recruits. It's called the Crucible, and it's basically a three-day field op with very little sleep and very little food. At the end of which, your platoon is supposed to sit down with your drill instructor, and he drops the act for a while, and uh, you're supposed to have a talk with him, man-to-man, about the Marine Corps. So we all found this little clearing, and my platoon sat in a circle with my drill instructor at one end, and he asked us all why we joined the Marine Corps. And we went around the circle, one at a time, and everyone gave all the textbook answers. 9-11, to fight terrorism, to protect the American way, and so on and so forth. When it was my turn, without even really thinking about what I was saying, I basically just recited the sales pitch that the recruiter gave to me. I told him that I needed a way to pay for college, that I wanted the life experience, the benefits, and so on. And then my drill instructor said to me, Oh, so you're one of them. You're one of those that thinks only about what the Marine Corps can do for them. Recruit, you're going to have a hard year, hard time in my Marine Corps, or something like that. I was a bit taken back seeing how all I did was recite my recruiters' talking points. I didn't realize that this is the point in training where you have to stop being honest about why you joined. But it turns out that my drill instructor was exactly right. Anyways, I finished boot camp. Um, And at first, I was pretty happy to be a Marine. Uh, Within less than a year, I found myself in Iraq. And at this point, with a year in, I started to see a lot of things that I didn't like about the Marine Corps. Um, I hated the hazing that we had to go through as new, new Marines. I hated the ego that goes along with you know, a rank structure. Um, but I, wasn't ex- I actually kind of liked the infantry. In fact, in my mixed-up 19-year-old mind, I thought it was pretty romantic. I was under no illusions about our mission. I didn't believe for a second that I was in Iraq to help Iraqis. I knew perfectly well that this was all about oil. But at the same time, I saw myself as being some sort of burden bearer for American society. And um, I liked the idea of being expendable. And I kind of liked walking around with guns. Plus, when in civilian life would I have ever had an opportunity to see places like this? We started our deployment in western Iraq, way out in the desert. We were at a base called Camp Al-Assad. And we spent most of our time driving KBR contractors back and forth between our base and the Haditha Hydroelectric Dam. It seemed pretty obvious to me that... I was in Iraq to, to uh, support KBR on their mission, but I didn't mind that at all. Iraq was turning out to be everything I hoped it would be. I was in this beautiful corner of the world where nobody in my hometown had ever been or would ever go, and the best thing about it was it was a little dangerous. After a couple months, we moved to Camp Fallujah, and we started running missions in the villages outside of Fallujah. This was around July of 2004. The area that we were in along the Euphrates River was the most beautiful place I'd ever been to in my whole life. And the best part about this was I had taken a two-week Arabic course before we deployed, and my chain of command actually believed that I could speak a moderate amount of Arabic. And they would send me out into villages with one other Marine who took the same course. Neither one of us could say more than, hi, how are you, in Arabic, and we were supposed to gather intel. (laughs) It was probably the greatest experience of my life, though. It was really great being able to go out to these villages and hang out with Iraqis and just, you know, say the little phrases that they taught us how to say. I could tell that the Iraqis were afraid of us, but uh, they always brought us bread and they brought us tea and uh, they really treated us well. There they are. Um, But when my unit started searching people's houses and arresting people, in some cases very whimsically, things began to change. I could see that we were making Iraqis' lives very difficult, but no one in my unit could figure out why they didn't want to cooperate with us. We got into our first firefight in August after someone in my unit stepped on an IED and got his leg blown off. His name was Bagarella and he was from Massachusetts too. After that firefight, the villagers accused us of shooting three civilians. I don't know whether it was true or not, but I know we did absolutely nothing to find out. We just got in our Humvees and drove away. At this point, things started to really change for me. On one hand, I knew we weren't in Iraq to help Iraqis, but I never actually thought we would kill innocent people. I was beginning to see that collateral damage and killing innocents means the same thing. And part of me understood that I had become something that I never wanted to be. My grandmother was a Native American, and as a kid I always hated soldiers that helped wipe Native Americans from this continent. And as a kid I watched Vietnam movies, and it disgusted me how Americans could have done things like the My Lai Massacre. But somehow I never realized that I was joining the same Marine Corps that massacred Native Americans and Vietnamese. It was beginning to become clear to me, but the consequences of refusing to go on were also becoming clear. More than anything, I was afraid of going home and people saying that I couldn't hack it or that I was a coward. And I'm really ashamed to say that what was holding me back from doing what I knew was right was that I was afraid people would call me names. It's actually worse than that, though, because part of me was still blinded by the glory around the corner. I convinced myself that if I could just not think about the people that we were arresting on a whim and the people that we were shooting and harassing and finish my deployment, I could go home and everyone would think that I was a hero, and then everything would be all right. So I turned my brain off, and I just went through the motions, and I tried not to think about what we were doing. When my battalion was selected for the second assault of Fallujah, I didn't give it much thought. When they told us that all the civilians had left the city, I didn't think about what that meant. I listened to everyone around me who was talking about how great this was going to be, how we were going to make history, and how people back home, they were going to go throw parades for us when we came back. And I never really thought about that much, either.
1: Some thoughts from Ross Caputi, the co-founder of the Justice for Fallujah Project. You can find out more about the Justice for Fallujah Project at www.thefalujaproject.org. This week, November 18 to 24th, is announced as Remember Fallujah Week and the documentary film called Fear Not the Path of Truth is screened in contemporary cities and centers around the world. The sociologist Amir Alani, Professor Noah Komsky from MIT, the journalist Farad Alani, Professor Intisar Aryabi, the head pharmacist of Baghdad Hospital, Mohammad Ali Daraji, the scientist, Dirk Adriansens, the author and activist, Professor Kathleen malti from Boston, and other activists and scholars collaborate on the Justice for Faluto project. Where is Fallujah? Who are these people? If you look at the map, you will see that Fallujah, known as the city of beautiful mosques, is located in the west of Baghdad and the heart of Iraq. In 1920, the people of Fallujah resisted against the British invasion of the town and defeated the deceived of the British colonel Gerard Lechman. In 2003, when American military invaded the town, the British supported the invasion as a historical revenge marked from past. And based And their present investments in the geopolitics of the region. Since 2003, when uranium depletes and phosphorate bombs were used by US and British militaries against the people of Fallujah, the city of mosques became uranium contaminated, which has caused dramatic genocide of the Muslim people of Fallujah. There are no babies born in Fallujah or if born, with horrific genetic mutations, leukemia and cancer. The gradual genocide of Muslim Fallujah children is on rise, what is called as the Western Holocaust of Fallujah Muslims. Fallujah is near Karbala, the land of the historical epic of resistance against injustice in Muslim Shia and Sunni philosophy. based on the notes from Ross Caputti at www.FalujaProject.org After the resistance movement in Fallujah successfully repelled the first US-led siege of Fallujah in April of 2004, Fallujah became a symbol of heroism and resistance in Iraq. However, in the United States, Fallujah was made into a symbol of terrorism. The US mainstream media described Fallujah as a hotbed of anti-Americanism and an insurgent stronghold. Fallujahs were depicted as extremists. Never were the voices heard or the opinions about the occupation of the country discussed. The desires and wishes were considered irrelevant. In November of 2004, the U.S. launched a massive siege on Fallujah that killed somewhere between a thousand to six thousand civilians, forced hundreds of thousands to flee their homes and left much of the city in ruins. From that point on, Fallujah became a symbol to much of the world of the cruelty of U.S. occupation in present times. The suffering inflicted on Fallujah did not end in 2004. Life for the people who chose to return to their city never improved. The US-led occupation imposed security measures and curfews that made living a normal life in Faluda impossible. Residents had to struggle to make ends meet in their ruined city. Constant security checkpoints, ID card scans and arrests only made life harder. And all of this was compounded by a severe lack basic service, electricity, clean water and health services that were shut down to the people. For the Fallujah people, since 2004 there has been a dramatic increase in birth defects, infant mortalities, mental retardation and cancers of all sorts in Fallujah. The birth defects are truly horrifying. Babies have been born with six fingers on each hand Scaly skin, missing limbs, two heads, and there has been one case of a child born with a single eye in the center of his forehead. So far, all of the research into the case of this health crisis, which is prevalent through Iraq but most dramatic in Fallujah, suggests that United States munitions caused this health crisis by polluting the environment with uranium and other toxic metals. One study has argued that there is genetic damage within the population of Fallujah, and the evidence suggests ionizing radiation exposure, most likely from uranium-based weapons, are the persistent cause. This has led some to compare Fallujah to Hiroshima and Nakazaki although the rates of cancers and birth defects are higher in Fallujah. In fact, so many children in Fallujah are now being born horribly deformed or mentally retarded that many mothers are afraid to try to have babies and many women has stopped having families. What is now called as the western holocaust in present time, the holocaust of muslim people of Fallujah and Iraq is a remembrance of the history of Marshallese islands, the lands that were polluted nuclearly in a way that the ecology and the people will be affected for the next 25 million years. has had horrible effects on the Iraqi population, but the suffering in Fallujah has been exceptional. Fallujah is to the occupation of Iraq, where Lai was to the Vietnam War, and what Hiroshima and Nagasaki were to World War II. We recognize that as students, scholars, and working people, We have a responsibility to hold our societies and states accountable and we acknowledge that justice requires more than just words. We must take action as long as Fallujah continues to suffer and until Iraq and Middle East and all of the Western colonial consequences Are addressed through our foreign policies. We will do everything in our power to end the imperial policies of our states, the dislocation, injustice, and discrimination of human rights. We will stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Iraq, in Fallujah, and we will fight to eradicate the culture of militarism and individualism that's destroying us at home. We will not let Fallujah disappear from our collective memory and implore our friends and families to never forget what was done there. The resistance of the Muslim people of Fallujah is based on their epic philosophy of resistance, associated with the historical martyr of Hussein, the son of Ali, and the grandson of their prophet Muhammad. The spirit of Hussein is the philosophy of resistance against marginalization and resistance against discrimination. the epic of Karbala, the land near Fallujah and the south of Baghdad in Iraq. the epic of Karbala the epic that is remembered and revived through mourning and 40 days of every year among millions of contemporary Muslim peoples of Persian culture context Iraqis Afghans Pakistanis Indians Bosnians Georgians Tajiks Turkish Arabs Kurds Syrians and African, Western, and Asian Muslims. The day of Ashura is on the 10th day of Muharram, the first month in the lunar Islamic calendar, and marks the climax of the morning of Muharram. It is commemorated by Shia and some Sunni Muslims the resistance of the liberty of heart and soul in the Battle of Karbala on 10th of Muharram in the year 680. The resistance philosophy of Hussein has become a national epic event of education, self-reflection and self-determination in contemporary ethnic and religious communities throughout the Islamic culture, especially in the Persian cultural context where the notion of resistance against injustice had roots in thousand years of epic Civilization through historical narratives of Rustam, Siavash, and multiple iconic characters, whose ultimate, upsetting example was revived and revisioned through the epic of Hussein, the son of Ali. The messenger of this revival of resistance for self-determination is the heroic woman, Lady Zainab, the daughter of Ali and the sister of Hossein. She is the witness to the injustice and discrimination. She is the survivor from the epic scene and remains the voice of this historical deliberation. Zainab rises the flag in Sham, in Damascus, now in Syria, today, where Zainab's glorious tomb is. The Muslim and Christian Syrians collectively and shoulder by shoulder visit Zainab's tomb during the days of Ashura in Damascus and they mourn and remember The Epic of Zainab and Imam Hussein
0: اگه لبهای تو تشنست دل تو شبیه دریاز تو چی کار کردی که آب شده مدیون تو عباس واسه کشتی عالام شد خدا قبل دل دریا خون یکی گفته یا یا دو تا چشماش ببیابون نگران در انتظاره با سولار سالار یه نفار خبر میاره دو تا چشماش ببیابون نگران در انتظاره با سه سالار نفر خبر میانه یعنم دار آوردن مثل قرص ماه خون قد سروشو شکستن نمیدون نمیدون یالم دار آوردن مثل قرص ماه خون سر بهش شکستن نمیدونی ننیدون یه علمدار رو آوردن که دیگه نفس نداره مثل عباس بیاف ولی دو تا دست نداره.
1: The Bloody Full Moon, the song by Reza Sadeghi, the voice of Iran devoted to you, our Seymour of listeners who stayed with us during the story. Of Fallujah, Karbala, and the Epic of Hossein.
0: Chestio lam Abalfas. <laughs> Yo Abalfas. You are the, first. You're the...
1: دوباره به فلات ایران تک تک شما دوستان را به پروردگار نگه دارنده میر و میربانان می سبارد تا پنجشنبه دیگر با شهر سینو از آموزه ها، ها و هنر فلات ایران For joining Seymour Storyland. You can listen to Seymour Stories at www.parsma.blogspot.ca or join Seymour Friends at facebook.com slash Seymour Radio. پاینده و پیروز در پناه خداوند باشید
0: شنیده مگی، ای آشنا چشم دل بکشم حال من به سوز و ساز دلم را ندیده مگی، این شب که تو در کنار
1: you are listening to CITR 101.9 FM شما به صدای CITR روی موجه 101 ممیز نو گوش می دهید جامعه پژوهشگران پارس شما را به شنیدن برنامه بعد دعوت می کند
0: mental illness or addiction touched your life? You might be interested in coming out to The Kaleidoscope, UBC's first and only student-created, peer-run mental health support group at the university's Vancouver campus. They offer a stigma-free place for people to share their stories with others going through similar experiences.